Welcome to the Lenten Series podcast of Christ Church at Grove Farm. We are thrilled to be able to join you in this season of reflection and repentance as we make our way to the commemoration of the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are joined in this season by some of Pittsburgh's most well-known and influential pastors who will be leading us on one of the Psalms each week. You can find more messages like this to aid in your Lenten and faith experience on our website, ccgf.org, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also keep up with Christ Church on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Here is this week's Lenten message. Grace and peace to you. Well, that is good news. Do you know I am more comfortable confessing my sins than I am in any other part of the worship service? I don't know how you feel about that. What we're addressing as we make our way through Lent is that somber assessment of how sinful we are and how desperately we needed a savior. One who came for the unhealthy, the sick, the dying. I remember on one occasion, I, one of the larger city-wide meetings that was in Philadelphia, and I was preaching there on marriage one night. We had a series of One of the nights was dealing with marriage. And I began by saying, uh, got good news for all of us who are failures at marriage. I don't know about you again, but I don't feel like I've been the father I should be and the husband I should be. I'm more comfortable dealing with my failure than anything that looks like success. Well, one clergyman in the group came up to me after he said, that's a terrible way to begin a sermon, telling us we're all failures at marriage, and then sort of preaching to it. I said, well, it's the truth. You know, there was a day when a man like me was preaching, and it was in a packed church out on the West Coast. And to make the point about us all being screwed up, He put it a little more delicately than that. He said, is anybody here perfect? And he went to go on with his sermon because it looked like who's going to stand up and say that when a chap did stand up at the back of the church. And he said to him, are you perfect, sir? He said, no, I'm standing up for my wife's first husband. (laughs) See, you can laugh at that. So let's pray here and ask the Lord to come speak to us in his mercy. Our sins, though they are many, his mercy is greater. Let's talk to him. Well, Lord Jesus, thank you for being our saviour. Thank you for coming and dealing with our sin. Thank you for the price you were willing to pay. Thank you that in your day on earth, it was the messed up, sinful outcasts who were drawn to you. Quite astoundingly, the self-righteous religious leadership 
all were antagonized by you. What a switch. Well, we are glad to say as we enter into this season, making our way with you, Lord Jesus, to Calvary, that in one sense, we freely admit we are sinners for whom you died. So this evening, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And as a result of all this, Lord, take our hearts and set them on fire with love for yourself. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, we're going to, uh, we're going to consider David. This is a Psalm of David, Psalm 32. It's a parallel, though an abridged form of Psalm 51, which we all prayed together this evening. And it has to deal with David sinning, sinning so unbelievably badly. When you think that he's described in the Bible as a man after the heart of God. And then there is this episode, which Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 speaks to, almost as if they are a response in writing to his sin. Let me tell you what the big sin was for him. He may have had a lot of other sins, but this was immense. So here he is king. He's living in his palace. The troops off are off at war. And uh, he didn't go with them, which often the king and all the kings in that day did. And he's out on his roof of his palace. And what does he see but a beautiful woman, presumably close to naked, bathing on the roof of her house, the little house, not too far away. Now, what do you think he did? He didn't say, whoops, and turn around and go indoors. He stood there and ogled her, looked at her, secretly admired her beauty, lusted after her, to the point that having gone back in after she had gone in, he found out who she was. She found out, he found out rather, that her husband was away at war. So he had her invited over to the palace. And being the king and she being the young lady, he took her to bed. She not too long after that reported that she was pregnant. So he's thinking to himself, what can I do? Her husband's away at war. It's obviously not his baby. I know what I'll do. I'll get him off the battlefield and back home. Calls in, asks how, calls him back, asks him into the palace, asks him how the war's going, and uh, sends him off to go, he presumed, to bed with his wife. 
but he doesn't go to bed with his wife and he sleeps, as it were, on the doorstep. So David calls him back in, getting a little desperate, gets him liquored up, says, now you go and sleep with your wife. He said, far be it from me to be sleeping with my wife while my fellow comrades in arms are at war. And he doesn't go to bed with his wife. So in his going back to the battlefront, David sets him up to be killed. Sends him with a letter like his own death warrant. He didn't know it, but a letter from himself to the leader of the forces of Israel. And the letter said, send this man into the front lines and into the place of danger. Which, of course, was done. And he was killed. And then David took his wife, Bathsheba, married her and made her part of his family. God was not happy. And via his man, Nathan, Nathan, a prophet, he says to Nathan, you need to go to the king. Tell him this story. I'll repeat it in just a moment. And it'll be very convicting to him. But it's really a description of what David has done with Bathsheba and her husband. So Nathan goes to the king with this story. There was a man, just an ordinary little chap. He had one little lamb that he really loved and he fed it from his table and nestled it in his lap. It was like one of the family. But one day a very important man came by and he had to throw a meal. I've just missed a step there. Just shows you I'm a sinner. Another man who was rich and influential had somebody come by for dinner and rather than kill one of his own lambs for dinner, he took this man's one little lamb and killed it and ate it for his dinner. Well, David was indignant. He said, you tell me who that was. He's, I'll fix him. And those blood-curdling words from Nathan to David. In the old language, thou art the man. And told him, as God had revealed it to him, his sin with Bathsheba and the killing of Bathsheba's husband. So David was found out. And these Psalms 51 and 32 are expressions of his remorse at his sin and the forgiveness that God gave him. What's amazing, across the space of the great men of the Bible, how many of them were really crummy, rotten sinners? You take Abraham, who was the founder of the Hebrew people, seen as the father not only of Judaism nowadays, but the Muslim Arab population. 
He had his wife pose as an independent, lovely woman who was taken by another powerful king as if she were available. And that was Abraham's idea to protect himself. Moses, giver of the law, set up the whole sacrificial system under God's leadership. He was a murderer. David, man after God's own heart, and he did what we've just spoken of, writ large in the Bible. When you come to the New Testament, Jesus, above all time, perfect. Standing alone, perfect. Peter, as we heard, turned chicken, coward, denied him. A couple of other times in across Bible records, Peter did the same thing. Really blew it. Saul, who became Paul the Apostle, wrote most of the New Testament. He stood by at the assassination of another Christian, participated by holding the clothes of those who threw the rocks. Anybody here perfect? And if those legendary leaders, Bible portraits of great men of faith can fall as they did, you and I know that we can do the same and there but for the grace of God go we. So that really does set the stage for these verses from Psalm 32. Verses 1 and 2 we're going to spend a lot of time with this evening. I mean as much as we're able. Look at them with me as they're on the screen and I read them. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Notice that these are Beatitudes, both verses. Blessed. Blessed is the man. Blessed. Like the Beatitudes. What a way to begin to address this issue. But the blessing is this, that we can be forgiven. That's the blessing. And God desires to bless. In some instances, more than we desire to be blessed. He is willing to deal with our sin much more readily than we are. And we are the sinners. Blessed is the man, and there are three descriptions here in these verses of what sin looks like. The first is the word transgression. The second is the word sin itself. They're both in verse 1. And then in verse 3, the blessing is to the man whom the Lord imputes no iniquity. And we'll deal with that, old, that whole concept of imputation. So the first, transgression. That word literally, and by the way, in the Hebrew, there are three different words. 
talking about the same essential issue, what sin is, but in the first word, in transgression as interpreted here from the Hebrew, it really means going beyond a boundary, not dissimilar to what we call falling into temptation, falling into sin by trespassing, going beyond the border, being where we should not be. That was David as he saw himself in his sin with Bathsheba, trespassing another man's property, transgressing, going beyond the borders of whatever could be allowed. It's amazing when you start talking to teenagers about their sexual behavior and you're doing it from a Christian point of view, the common question is, well, how far can I go? In other words, how far can I push the limits without crossing the border? When that's your mindset, you're only a smidgen away from going over the border. You and I have been there and done that. To transgress. And there is something else that's in that word, and that is defiance. Like deliberately defying the limitations. Over in England, we have beautiful lawns. And often you will see on these beautiful lawns in the colleges and special places, it says, keep off the lawn. And when you see that, the one thing you want to do is go walk on it. Like defy the message. No trespassing, you want to trespass. You want to be there. There's a great ad on the TV about now about some special magic tape that when you put it between two objects, it really binds and there is some way in which it can easily separate and part. And I haven't got that worked out and I haven't purchased it, but it's something I need. But there's some kid who keeps throwing his food off the tray from his high chair. And then looks at the, you know, have you seen that in your own life? The kid pushes it off and then looks at you. And you put it back and he pushes it off and looks at you. He's, def- he's not only <laughs> transgressing, he's belligerent about it. And he knows what he's doing. He's looking in you, you in the eyes. Reminds me of an Irish story that is from Ireland. My, my stepfather was Irish. And this fella from the south of Ireland, Ireland is driving his Rolls Royce up to the north of Ireland in the bad old days when there was great violence between north and south. He gets to the border. The cop gets him out of the, at the border, out of his vehicle, his Rolls Royce, stands him there and says to him, is this your car? He says, it is, so it is. So the cop draws a chalk circle around the man and says to him, now you just stand there and do not step out of the circle. He says, I won't, so I won't. And the cop takes his billy club 
and smashes one of the headlamps of the Rolls Royce. And then he looks at the guy standing in the circle and the guy's grinning. So the cop says, you're telling me the truth, this is your car, is it? He says, it is, so it is. So he walks over to the other headlamp with his billy club and smashes at it. And then he looks up and the guy's standing there with a big grin. So the cop says, well, if this is your car, what are you grinning about? He says, well, I'll tell you the truth. He says, well, you've been beating up my Rolls Royce. I've been jumping in and out the circle. <laughs> That's you and me, baby. Doing what we shouldn't do, no matter what kind of beating. That is transgression. Second word is sin. This literally means to miss the mark. Pastor Craig was addressing this just a little while ago in one of his sermons. So you've got your bow and your arrow. That's the image in the Bible times. Maybe throwing your spear. But you miss the bullseye in a target. And there are two ways you can miss the bullseye. The first is this, have no intention of hitting it. When you think about sin, you miss it deliberately. It's not where you want to be. You want to be transgressing. You want to be missing the mark and sinning. I'll be truthful with you. For about two or three years, I resisted coming to a living relationship in Jesus, having not been raised religious and then finding out about the gospel, because I had a whole lot of sinning I wanted to do. And I discovered we can make all kinds of excuses for our behavior by attacking the Christian faith when that's not the issue at all. The issue is wanting to sin. That's exactly what's being described here. Deliberate missing the mark. And then the other way is when you want to hit it, but you can't. Like Paul says in the Bible, the good that I would, I don't do, and the evil that I don't want to do is what I do do. In other words, you want to be good, but you can't. You can't do it when it's doing goodness, and the badness you don't want to do, you keep doing. That's what's being described by this word. And then the third word is this, iniquity. That's there in uh, the second verse, to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity. Now, iniquity describes being twisted and distorted or perverted but it's something that's not what it should be. And that really is the root cause of the rest of it. We are twisted and distorted in ourselves. Like David in Psalm 51 says, against you only have I sinned. My sin is against you. 
And it was in sin my mother conceived me. Not that she was sinful in conceiving him, but in his conception, in his being conceived in the womb, sin came naturally to him. It was a part of being human. And all of us are twisted, distorted. You don't have to teach a kid to sin. They find out a way to do that all by themselves. Your career is trying to steer them away from sin and teach them how to behave differently. So those three words describe, in David's words and ideas, what sin is. So when it comes to the three words that talk about forgiveness... Look at verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. And that word in its original language means to be lifted, borne away. It actually has an overtone of, that's an unfortunate way of expressing it, atonement. That God lifts the burden. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye who travail and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. And we often think about that as being weary in work, weary in life, and it does mean that. But you add to that the misery that we create through our sinfulness, the burden of our guilt, to be able to come to Jesus. And he lifts it off you. Isaiah chapter 53 describes Jesus. It's a prophecy concerning Jesus. And it says he has borne all our sin. He has carried our grief. He made atonement, atonement for us. That's to be forgiven. The second word is covered. Do you see it there? Whose sin is covered. What a beautiful idea to cover it over. You know, a verse in the Bible says, love covers a multitude of sins, but the ultimate love, Christ dying on the cross, shedding his blood to cover our sin. There's another concept that talks about our sin being cast into the depth of the sea. That's actually out of the Old Testament. Book of Micah, chapter 7, verse 19. Cast into the depths of the sea. Covered. It has implications with the mercy seat, which was the covering of the Ark of the Covenant, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you remember? And there was this ark that had within it some very special holy objects. It's like a large box, gold-covered. And two of the objects in that were the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on. But it was covered with what is called the mercy seat. And once a year, that ark in the Holy of Holies the holy place of the most holy place 
at the heart of the nation of Israel, the high priest would go into that Holy of Holies just once a year and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And that mercy seat was a covering over the law, the Ten Commandments, which we were all prone to break. A covering that God wants to be merciful. He is holy. He calls on us to be holy. We fail to be holy. And he makes the means by which we can be forgiven. And Jesus himself is that ultimate covering. And then the third pointer in, in verse 2, uh, blessed is the, the man to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity. The word impute means to reckon. It's like an accounting word. Blessed is the man whom the Lord in his records has not accounted for his iniquity, his sinfulness. And the opposite is true when you take that very concept because within the New Testament, in other words, the time from Jesus' death and resurrection onward, a person can have the righteousness of Christ imputed to him, that is, reckoned to him. And that's the hope of the gospel. The early indicator of this is Abraham himself all the way back at the beginning of things. Because he believed God when God said, you will have a son. And your son will be, along with others, the large nation that will flow from your family, out of your own body. And Abraham believed God and it says, the Lord thereby accredited to him, reckoned to him, imputed to him, righteousness. And the Apostle Paul in the New Testament picks up on that. And it's the central theme of all his preaching and teaching. Listen to these words as he describes it for himself. This is from Philippians and chapter 3. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuse in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And then it goes on to describe this. Having a righteousness that's not of my own, a righteousness that's not of my own, but is based and not based on the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In, that's imputed righteousness. And that's the central heart and thought of the gospel. So those three big words describing sin and three huge concepts describing forgiveness. So as we make our way to the cross of Christ, this opening psalm leads dramatically into that journey. 
So let me ask you to bow your heads with me. And together we will reflect on what we have heard, what God has said, these truths from his word, from his mouth. O Lord Jesus, it's as if we come and kneel at the foot of the cross. That is where we are coming as we celebrate your last supper. To the cross. Thank you that you took as bonded, listed all our sins and nailed them to the cross. That you bore in your body on the cross as you sacrificed your life. All our sin, our obstinate transgressions, our deliberately missing the mark, or incidentally missing the mark, and the twisted, distorted inner self that makes sinning so easy and a part of our lives. We bring to you, Lord Jesus, feeling disgusted with ourselves, lamenting our failure, crying out to you, Lord, have mercy. I have sinned. Please forgive me. And as your blood flows from your wounded head, your wounded hands, your wounded feet and your pierced side. May that blood come down over us and cover us. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath its flood Lose, oh hallelujah, Lord Jesus, lose all their guilty stains. Cleanse me right now, Lord. Make me as white and clean as the, the driven snow around us. Thank you for your promise, Lord, that if we come, as we have seen ourselves at your feet, your wounded feet, that you will cleanse us. Thank you for such mercy, Lord Jesus. 
Thank you for your cross. Lead us on as we follow you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.